Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. This episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. They've got delicious gourmet pizzas or choose from an array of fresh ingredients and make whatever you like. Calzones, wings, panzerotti, salads, breadsticks, garlic bread. Pizza Trocadero has it all. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or visit them online at trocaderoguelph.ca. That's T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. Call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Creative Control with Beach On this episode, Dan Beckner of Operators, whom you also might know from his bands Divine Fits, Handsome Furs, and Wolf Parade. Dan and I saw each other just a few weeks ago when his band operators were here in Guelph, and it was great. They played a show as part of a festival, and it was excellent. And uh, we talked about uh, chatting right around then, and then it just every week we tried, and we couldn't make it happen. Busy guys. Various things. But anyway, we made it happen. So... I think uh, if you're a fan of Dan's, you will definitely uh, find this interesting. And if you don't know Dan's work, uh, he's a really uh, smart, thoughtful guy. And uh, I I think you're in for a treat. Dan, you're going to hear a song by operators on this show uh, at the end of the interview. So that's that's the deal. This is myself and Dan Beckner. Get ready for Kazoo Fest 2015, taking place throughout Guelph between April 8th and 12th. Musical acts include Deerhoof, Home Shake, Last X, Fedre, Scott Merritt, Tyvek, Lido Pimienta, Absolutely Free, Jeffrey Lewis, and many, many more. There will be art by Sherry Boyle and Jen E. Norton, plus dance, print, multimedia, and much more. Visit kazookazoo.ca for ticket and schedule info, and do not miss Kazoo Fest in Guelph this April.
a multi-talented musician and singer who originally hails from British Columbia. After forming a short-lived band called Atlas Strategic on the West Coast, Beckner eventually moved to Montreal, where he co-founded the esteemed and popular bands Wolf Parade and Handsome Furs, both of which garnered loyal audiences before ceasing to exist, seemingly. Beckner subsequently lived in California for a spell and formed Divine Fits with members of Spoon and New Bomb Turks, garnering strong reviews for their 2012 debut album, A Thing Called Divine Fits. His current focus is an excellent electronic-based rock band called Operators, who have released EP1 and a single called Ecstasy in My House. Uh, Both have uh, been uh, out since around August 2014. They've come out subsequent to August 2014. And both are available now via Last Gang Records. Operators have been touring across North America. And here to discuss some of these things is Dan Beckner. Hi, Dan. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Where well, where are you, Dan? I uh, where am I? I'm in a I'm in a sublet in Montreal, um, next to a barbecue restaurant. Oh, that sounds that's where I'm at. That sounds pretty tasty. Yeah, it's not bad. It's uh, it's home for the time being. Yeah. Now, what what did you and I saw each other in Guelph? Uh, not I guess we're talking towards the end of February here. It was. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. A few weeks really. ago, yeah, yeah. and uh, you guys played a great show at uh, the that Hillside Inside thing. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Did you know that I'm a big fan of your drummer, Sam Brown? I, I did. Well, after uh, after we saw each other at, at Hillside Inside, yeah, yeah, you uh, you talked about Sam on stage, which was you were you were a, you were a fan. I, <laughs> he's a great drummer. I, I didn't realize how diverse. Uh, and distinct a drummer he was. He did a lot of cool stuff. He's a fantastic drummer. He's he's probably uh, one of the best musicians I've ever worked with in my life. He's actually not probably. He definitely is one of the best musicians I've ever played with. Really? He, uh, uh, yeah. Well, just his switch between genre. Um, he he plays with uh, a punk band, you know, New Bomb Turks. He also played in divine fits plays in divine fits when his style for divine fits is very different than operators so operators we once we realized how good sam was on drums because i honestly think in divine fits on the record he was he was kind of reining it in a little bit Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh once we figured out how good he was we were just like you know what buddy you just you just do you do your own thing um pretty sure whatever drum beat you come up with is going to be better than what I come up with and that seems to be working so <laughs> yeah no he's great yeah. so what have you what have you been up to since I saw you in Guelph because we you and I tried to 
get this conversation happening a few times and we both ended up busy. What have you been up to? I've been looking for an apartment in Montreal and I've been writing some songs for uh, for operators. Oh, okay. Yep. How's the, apar- yeah. how's the apartment hunting going? Uh, you know, it's... I'm taking it one day at a time. <laughs> I, I've gotten into the situation where I haven't I haven't done this for a while. I haven't hunted for an apartment for a while. So, uh, you know, the last couple of places I looked at, uh, th- there were some questions. One in particular, which was on Park Avenue, right next to the Y, and it's being uh, it's a lease transfer from the guy who's living there. It's a great apartment. I am not eligible to take it. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, I started talking to the guy and it seemed like things were going really well. He's a great, nice dude, you know, talked about music. He actually knew who I was, which was flattering. And then he was like, okay, we just got to talk to the landlord. And so he's, he's conveying things to the landlord. She doesn't, she's not talking to me directly. She's in Greece. She's Greek and she's in Greece, uh, doing some family stuff. And he's telling her. Okay, you know, like he lived in America for a while, and her response was, "I need three and a half thousand dollars up front." Oh my god! <laughs> Just because I lived in America, and uh, and then I was gonna like, I talked to him, and I was like, "That that's that's totally insane. That makes that makes no sense because when you rent an apartment, you sign a lease, which is like a legally binding contract. Everybody knows this, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was like, just do a, just do a credit check on me. Just get her to do a credit check. And, uh, <laughs> she wanted to know what I did for a living. So I mentioned, you know, obviously through him, I was like, he's a musician. And that I guess was not, that was just a huge red flag. And I'm going to, I'm just going to bring up the fact right now. I'm 37 years old and I have been a musician for 10 years. It's not like, I don't know. I think there's a big disconnect with, uh, the straight, the like quote unquote straight world and, uh, and people who play music. I think, I think there's a major misconception about, uh, the way musicians are. I think she just had this idea that I would be jamming on my flamenco guitar or, djembe for like you know at all hours of the day and night and just doing you know drugs she's never heard of <laughs> sure <laughs> like, sure yeah yeah yeah, My, yeah when, like i the first time i went on tour i was road managing road managing the band royal city and uh, my parents and my aunt referred. She they were worried that i was tra- they were i was traveling with a bunch of vagabond druggists that's what they said druggists yeah they thought i was like, just <laughs> Traveling with a bunch just of pharmacists, writing, writing pers- filling prescriptions <laughs> left and right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think people just don't yeah. understand what it uh, consists of. And I mean, for a landlord, yeah. I think the number one thing probably is like, "Oh, they're a musician. How are they going to make any money? I need money." Yeah, and that I mean, that is an absolutely fair question, Vish. Like that is <laughs> is totally a hundred percent a fair question. But I think if you talk to the person, you're like. I, this has been my main job for 10 years, then at that point, uh, you know, as long as they do a credit check to confirm or deny that. I was almost like, just Google, like, here, just get her to Google me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> because, because I don't feel like explaining to people, you know, you know what I mean? I don't, I, I, I understand that, that they have to ask these questions, but I just don't, I, don't, I just don't feel like explaining myself. It's like, it's like dating somebody for the first time when you're a musician, then you have to explain, you find yourself like explaining to their parents all, you know, all your successes. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, we, 
we did like a we we did 250 people in Hamilton. You know, it was awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Yeah, I can. Yeah. I, I hear that. I hear that. Yeah, Dan, I, I noticed that uh, in using the technology we're using, we are you are slightly breaking up, um, and I'm wondering if we should try switching to the video function. Okay. Because we're just using the audio. You and I went through this already, and it's been a bit of an ordeal. But I think we should switch to the video and see what happens. I think it's. Okay, fair I enough. think it's because my wife is uh, upstairs uh, breastfeeding my child and watching like Top Chef Canada on the internet. Okay, fair enough. There's just like yeah. a lot of internet going on. So let me just see what happens here if I press. Nothing is happening when I do that. What about this? No, nothing. What? Oh my god, do I have to start this whole call again? Why is this a thing that happens? Oh my god, Dan. Oh. You're gonna, yeah, you're gonna have to start start the call again. I'm buddy. gonna start the call again, and we'll pick up right where we left off because I have lots of questions for you. Can you hang tight a second? Yeah, we'll fi- we'll fix it in post production. We'll fix right. it in post. Yeah, just give me a second here. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Hey, Dan, are you there? I'm here. We're back. We're back. This is this is much better now that we can see each other. I think it's going to be better. I think so too. Even though that kind of defies all everything I know about uh, internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is in a sense this is more social. This is more social. Yeah. This this uh, I want to talk to you about operators and how it began. But this uh, what you just said triggers uh, a question I wanted to ask you because you have been in many bands now. And uh, being in a band, you've got to start new relationships every time. And yeah. so I, my question was going to be, you know, are you are, or, or rather, it was almost a statement. Based on this, you are not a loner, are you? You need to have friends. You like making new friends. Is that is that fair? Uh, yeah, I think I think at the at the heart of it, I I like being alone, like for the for the writing process. At least I used to, you know. Uh, maybe now I'm getting a little more used to, you know, collaborating with people. And I know it seems like I, my entire history has been collaboration, but a lot of stuff I've written I've, has started. The seeds of, of those songs were really done alone, you know, like uh, alone in a room somewhere. And and I, you know, I didn't really feel the need for. Yeah, I, I kind of felt like a loner for a long time. Maybe recently now I've I've. That's sort of come out of my shell, but I do like working with people. I like collaborating with people at at a certain point in the creative process, and I definitely like being on stage with people, and I like having a close bond with the people I'm in a band with. I don't like the idea of writing a bunch of crap and then hiring strangers to play it <laughs> and going on tour with them and not speaking to them or like not having a close relationship because I don't think that makes for good. That doesn't make for good shows. It just doesn't. Yeah, like that. that but we've this is almost a cliche, but that band chemistry, chemistry between people in relationships is very important. I think we, yeah. as you're 37, I'm 37. As you get older, you realize that that's really what makes the world go round is the people that you have an effortless connection with. Almost, I I totally agree. Yeah, and I, and I think in such a public. Uh, a public format, like being on stage and playing a show, presenting something to a bunch of people, uh, whether they know it consciously or unconsciously, whether they're musicians or not musicians, I I think there's a palpable sense of excitement when things are really firing on stage, you know? like. Have you been in a situation at any point in your musical life where you've been playing with people that you're not in a band with, that you're not friends with? Have you been a hired gun? 
It's a good question. Uh, no, I mean, I've been hired to play in friends bands before. Uh, oh, that's different though. Yeah. Yeah. Just to come in and do backup vocals or, or play guitar or whatever, you know, that, that to me is, that's fine. I like that role, but no, I've never been hired by strangers. I think the closest I ever got was I got hired to do a soundtrack for a film and there was talk. I, I didn't know, but it, it got shot down. So, yeah. sorry, you broke up there. You were going to say it was talk. Uh, it got shot down. The, oh, okay. the idea, yeah, the idea of, of collaboration just kind of disappeared. So, why? What happened? Um, I just wanted to do it myself. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you at heart a loner then? Like, I, I'm talking. I'm trying to get a, a sense of your social dynamics because every time I've seen you in public, like you know, you and I have encountered one another for I don't know ten years, eleven years now, and. Yeah, you yeah, see, we've played shows together. <laughs> that's right, and, and from at, at an early point in, in your in your band's lives, I suppose, uh, in Wolf Parade's life, mm-hmm. anyway. But you you yeah. um, you struck me as a, a kind of outgoing guy. Have you always been this way, or is there a part of you that keeps uh, keeps to yourself? Uh, there's a part of me that keeps to myself. I think there's. Uh, I think I think it's the part of me that writes songs. You know. That's the side of me, like, like the last week, I've had barely any human contact. Um, it's been minus 30-something with the wind here. I have stayed inside mostly, and aside from talking to landlords, uh, <laughs> p- prospective landlords, I've been, like, perfectly okay to be at home, you know, and yeah. just not, not speak to anybody. But that being said, like, the other, I, I think it's fifty-fifty. The other side of me is when I'm when I'm out on the road or I'm being social. I like being social. I like talking to people. I like hearing people's crazy ass stories. Mm-hmm. It was one of the great one of the things I, that made touring um, touring Eastern Europe and and uh, some of the more far flung places that the Furs did at the beginning of our career uh, before we really established a fan base there. That that made. That that element of my character, I think, made that very rewarding for me, is just listening to people talk after after shows, you know. Yeah, and did you guys deliberately play kind of far far off places, like places you would normally travel to? Yeah, yeah. Well, we, uh, I I had always been obsessed with Eastern Europe, you know, as a kid, and uh, I'd read a lot about it. I was. I was, you know, deep, deeply invested in reading these really nerdy books about, you know, Cold War era politics, even between the the, the respective uh, Soviet bloc nations. And I read a book on like the economic output of Bulgaria in the eighties, like stuff like that. Uh, so when we started touring Europe, I I just the first thing I wanted to do was go to the Baltics and go to former Yugoslavia and. That that was you know early early on in the career of Handsome Furs, and it snowballed into into us playing these pretty big venues in in those countries and being a draw, you know. Yeah. And and, and then having what I consider to be like lifelong friendships with people there, uh, who are fascinating and like really like really good friends to me, you yeah. know, like have been with me now through for yeah almost 10 years it's pretty it's pretty sweet do you have some uh sort of family uh heritage there what was it that compelled you to consume so many books about eastern europe in the when you were so in the 80s you would have been uh 
Well, you're the same as me. So you would have been, what was that, like three till three till uh, 13 or something like that? Or No, wait. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. yeah. Why, why, why were you reading so many books about Eastern Europe at that point? Well, I mean, you you probably remember the the mass market uh, American films, uh, action movies in the eighties. The bad guys were always that's true. Yeah, yeah. Some kind of if they you know like if they weren't a bearded like uh, Fidel Castro uh, clown cartoon from South America, they were a sinister uh, you know Eastern European KGB uh, you know associated villain right like it was a trope and um but i remember vividly being in school uh being in elementary school in couch and lake which is a very very small community i think at the time it was probably upwards to like 27 2800 people uh in couch and lake proper and we were talking about nuclear war and mutually assured destruction you know uh, the idea that one person fires a missile, there's primary targets, and then there's secondary targets, and then there's third and fourth tier targets. Uh, somebody in my class brought up the point was like, well, we don't have to worry about like the first wave of atomic strikes. I'm paraphrasing because they were a child and they <laughs> said it in a, a total, you know, but the, essentially what they were saying was like, our town is so small, no one would ever want to blow it up. And I remember our science teacher Rick not being like, that is categorically untrue. We are on the secondary target list for the West Coast of North America because we have a, we had a, a telesat station, a satellite station uh, that both broadcast and received information. And it was a known target. It was, there was a missile somewhere in Russia pointed or possibly Ukraine pointed at the telesat station. Wow, so you were mired in this... War games, Cold War fear stuff. Yeah, I was uh, fascinated by it too. Like huh. I, you know, I was fascinated by the by the enemy side, basically. You know, because I was really into Star Wars too, and to me, the Soviet Union just seemed like the evil empire, right? And st- which I was also fascinated with in Star Wars. So as as things went on, and you know, I watched the you know the wall came down, and then there's the war in Yugoslavia which the CBC covered extensively and the CBC was always on in my house. Hmm. So I would hear, you know, like Sarajevo over and over and over again, Bosnia, Kosovo, eventually. Yeah. I just, it just seeped into my consciousness and I I decided I wanted to read about it, you know, and one thing led to another. And then I was reading the economics books about Bulgaria in the eighties. And then I was there and then, and then I was fucking there in Sofia, like with my feet on the ground in Sofia, about to go play a show in my late twenties. And and that, I don't know, that that was that was a really important uh, for me. That was that was one of the best things that being a musician has ever done for me is get me to downtown Sofia in Bulgaria. Yeah! Wow! No, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. That's actually a thing that I think some people take for granted. I mean, the the fact that you get to see the world and. Uh, I'm curious, does any of this stuff feed into the uh, work you're doing in operators? Because I am trying to get a handle on operators a little bit. I don't. I want to know what, oh, the, yeah. what the deal is with it. Uh, do you think that <laughs> any of these themes are seeping into the, the music that you're making? Yeah, I mean, I do. I, 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 do. <laughs> I, I think there's an element of like that sort of... You know, I, I, here's the way it's seeping in. I 
ever ever since going to Eastern Europe for the first time, I've been in touch with uh, a really good friend of mine, Kepa, and a few other people who are involved in the music scene in Serbia and Poland. So I get to listen to a lot of 70s and 80s, you know, pre-wall coming down, socialist post-punk, which, uh, which is a huge musical influence on, on me, especially right now. Like I've, I've been going back to it again right now. So there's that. And there's also like, I have access to kind of new music coming out of there. I have people who will recommend, Hey, you should really listen to this insane techno band from Warsaw, (laughs) you know, or, uh, so, so in that way, yeah. Uh, geopolitically not so much as it was you know around the time that i wrote face control you know i right. think i got that system on that record and, and the following record so and do you, yeah. are, are you familiar with a band from um i believe they're from serbia called malfunction i know the name of that band yeah i'm not totally familiar with their musical output the guy that often uh more than often sponsors this podcast uh, Phil yeah. Phil from Pizza Trocadero played in this okay. amazing post-punk band called Malfunction. I have a, one of their records. I'm not sure what they're saying, but it, it, the music's amazing. I should actually I, it, should, I should get him on the show because I'm sure he's got some amazing stories. I Man, if you get him on the show, get me on the show, too. <laughs> I... I uh... Yeah, I'm a big. I, I, I bet when when was the band active? Was it active in the eighties? Yeah, the... I think so. I get the impression it was in the eighties or, or early nineties. Although, like we, he would come bring. The reason we kind of bonded is because he would come to my house to bring me pizza, and then he would see. I think at one point I was wearing a No Means No sweatshirt, and he flipped out. Um, and then yeah, and then the next time he came, he noticed that I had this Fugazi, shellac poster from a show i saw in chicago and he just again flipped out so we just became very quick like very fast friends and uh and yeah and then he gave me the music and his record like he burned me a disc of his band and it totally seems to be coming from that place that space and uh yeah it's cool i can send you the maybe i'll send you the record active in the 90s yeah there you go (laughs) i think they were i I think they were i think i gather they might have been yeah so yeah, I that's just... interesting. You mentioned Fugazi and No Means No because uh, the guy that uh, the man that brought me to uh, ex Yugoslavia took a chance on Handsome First at the first show there. Um, his name's Mate Skugor, and he uh, he did the first No Means No show in Yugoslavia, and he also brought Fugazi to Yugoslavia. Um, He's a great, great dude, but No Means No played his, uh, apparently played his wedding reception in the Adriatic coast. coast. So, yeah, it's good stuff. I love uh, No Means No. They're one of my favorite bands. I've seen them uh, more than most bands, I think, that I've seen. But uh, you, and you are, you're a British Columbia guy. Uh, Yeah. Was No Means No significant to you in any way or your circle of friends? Uh, They were to the generation, I think, just above me like probably steve like steve mcbean uh tony galuza uh the, the sort of hardcore guys in 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 victoria for me no means no really my experience with no means no was just listening to bands that were ripping them off you know uh and also i i had a tape copy of mama and and i i i liked it 
a lot, but I was I was more into the kind of K records, Kill Rock Stars stuff that was happening at the time, sure. like Unwound and you know, and everybody was really into like Nation of Ulysses and the makeup and stuff like that. So, I, you know, that was my vibes. Okay, that was where you were going. Okay, now you are. Yeah. I think for some people, you're known as a Montreal guy, but you're not a Montreal guy, and you know, you're enduring this cold. You're dealing with. Uh, judgmental landlords right now but you're you're kind of back in montreal now right after some time away yeah i am i, I just moved back here actually uh right before i saw you right before we operators did a tour with uh with new pornographers in ontario which was really fun but kind of weird <laughs> and uh it was great i mean I, I really love those guys and i love hanging out with them uh but the tour was a little weird uh wait wait, and, wait. whoa uh, whoa whoa why was it weird yeah because i and i and i think i i talked to carl and dan bayer about this but i think they're the new pornographers audience with the exception of i think the show that we played in in guelph the new pornographers audience in general pretty flabbergasted by operators hmm. you know like just like not, even just, if they were even if they were familiar with my work with Wolf Parade, uh, having uh, having a band walk on stage and just the like, especially like the first track, you know, having it just be full on uh, moog bass and and like a lot of squelchy synthesizers and no one's playing guitar and Sam is just beating the hell out of the drum kit and and it's very like crow rocky. I, I think that was just kind of a, a head fuck for uh, for a lot of for a lot of new pornographers fan on the other hand we did sell more merch on that tour than we've sold uh on any tour including both future islands tours that we were on which leads me to believe that new pornographers fans where they might not want to dance to that kind of music they are gainfully employed and they definitely want to buy records well it could be you say they were flabbergasted maybe they were just uh, kind of in shock at uh maybe you know maybe they were honestly impressed Maybe I mean it's not like nobody booed us, you know. There were, and and people seemed genuinely happy about the shows, but uh, we had just come off of playing a couple of shows in Vancouver, like headline shows at the Fox Theater. We did two nights, and that was probably the most insane crowd. Maybe that and and Vienna in Austria were the were the most insane crowds that we've had for operators so far. Like just really bananas. So. You've had uh, this unique experience of, uh, like, Wolf Parade ascended and uh, became, I think, one of North America's, you know, larger underground rock bands. And then you subsequently started, have started a few uh, uh, different projects. And I think on some level, uh, you've been in positions where you've played festivals, you've been in positions where you've opened for bands as almost an unknown entity again. Um, Yeah, that's an that's an interesting cycle for uh, someone who is established to still be, you know, challenging people and coming across as a as a fresh band. Is that is that it's sort of invigorating for you? It is. I think it's essential to me staying sane and continuing to make what I consider to be decent music. You know, like I have to I I have to do that. After Wolf Parade split up and, you know, after Handsome Fur split up, I could have, I had Divine Fits to to contend with, which was kind of that situation for both Brett and myself, you know, like Brett was coming off of, 
you know, some very successful touring with Spoon, and then to go and play a 200-capacity bar in Austin, Texas, and really have to prove yourself again, you know, because there's no... We played a lot of shows, not unlike operators, we played... We played shows before there was recorded material out, and that's really when you you've got to fucking sell it. <laughs> you you have to mean it. You can't just kind of coast and play a couple of the hits and then drift off and like you know that's. I, I think it's important to do stuff like that to keep yourself sharp. Yeah, it's 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 striking to me how integral branding is for bands. Like as a promoter or someone who helps people put on shows, I've come to the discovery that booking the guy from Arcade Fire or whatever <clears throat> doesn't necessarily resonate with people. Like if John K. Sampson from The Weekends plays a solo show somewhere in Guelph, it can be a harder sell. Way yeah. harder than you would think. I you you can even sort of couch it as, you know, the guy from the weaker than the guy from Wolf Parade. But yeah, it's weird that or what I don't know if you you must have discovered this too. Like in a sense, like people know your know you for being part of a certain brand, and I guess so yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Like you're doing the same. It's just funny that they're like, oh yeah, the guy from Wolf Parade. Well, I don't. I like Wolf Parade. I don't know what this thing is, so I'm not going to give it... You know, some people just aren't going to give yeah. the same attention. It's strange. I th I, th I think in a lot of ways that's fair enough, you know? Because who's to say that the guy from a band you like isn't going to show up and fucking noodle on a guitar for 90 minutes? Well, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is sort of presupposing everyone has had some weird traumatic experience with someone who's gone <laughs> solo or something, but... Yeah, I yeah. mean, when I hear your output, like you know, post Wolf Parade, there's definitely a thread. I mean, your voice is one of the most distinctive ones I know, and you know, you you're really good with hooks, and you get certain, you know, you I think you're a distinctive artist, and you bring that to each project. The sounds around you might be different, but I would think that, and I'm sure that I'm generalizing. I'm sure there are certainly Wolf Parade fans who are now following all the other stuff you do. But yeah, but you've probably yeah. noticed that the scale is a bit different. Oh, definitely, and I, I think you know each band creates its own fan base. Like when uh, when Handsome Furs started, Wolf Parade was on a on a very steep upward trajectory, um, and it's odd because when we when we put out apologies, it took I'd say it, it took about a year for that record to really catch on with people and. I noticed after after we did the Apologies record cycle, we went out and did another tour where we were auditioning new songs, uh, for which we eventually scrapped for for a prospective record too. Mm -hmm. And those were the shows which were above two thousand capacity. You know, that's when we started. You know, we did like two nights at Terminal Five, right? Like uh, on the subsequent tour after that. So at that point, Handsome First started, and and it was like back to plan for 50 people in Ottawa. And it took really a good 18 months to two years for Handsome First to be able to fill out a 500 capacity room anywhere, you know? And that that's anywhere except for New York, uh, where there are just so many people. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, it's just an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting and, psychological, psychological yeah. thing. I don't quite get that. Like I remember when, when Handsome First played two nights at the Jimmy Jazz in Guelph, which is a very tiny bar, 
Yes, it is. <laughs> but those were memorable shows, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they were. They yeah. absolutely were. So, and then, and then a totally odd thing is it, it, it's dependent on territory, too. So the Wolf Parade took a break from touring Europe. So when we went back uh, prior to releasing Expo 86, went back to Europe, it was in some of the places we played, including Zagreb, <laughs> it was billed as Dan from Handsome Furs presents Wolf, you know, in oh, Wolf Parade. Wow. Yeah. So strange. That is so strange. Yeah. Okay, there's no, I, I can't put my finger on it, and that's even weirder. <laughs> but that's like, but I think that absolutely has to do with certain people are attracted to certain types of music, and it doesn't matter who's who's at the helm, you know? Sure. Like with with operators now, we even even with operators, we have a different fan base than, there's a, there's a core element of people, I think, who followed my career, and definitely fans of, a few random fans of Sam's work will definitely show up to absolutely anything he's involved with, especially in Ohio where he lives. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I've noticed again after touring for a year in North America, like operators now has its own individual fan base that has some crossover from the other bands, but a lot of, a lot of new people too. So it's just a process of building, you know? Yeah. And, And you have to work really hard at it and, I think, I don't know. I th- I think it can only be a good thing, you know? It just takes, it takes time with each project. You, you can't, ju- you can't just expect, I, th- I think the idea, I know like Kevin Drew put out a solo album recently and I don't want to speak for Kevin, but I think that perhaps some people in and around Kevin Drew's, like who worked on that record were disappointed with, the the that it wasn't you know as big as broken social scene right right yeah sure I and then but you can't i i think that you can't if you have one thing that's popular you can't just always hold everything up to that that standard you know like you have to it just takes time it takes time and uh it takes time to accumulate accumulate fans and accumulate uh accumulate a following really yeah, and I appreciate your willingness to like you mentioned that when Wolf Parade was potentially at its peak in terms of popularity and finished touring, you almost immediately went out with Handsome Furs. Um, yeah, like no, was that capitalizing on the limelight? Is that just some inherent desire that you had to keep doing something? Does did that did Handsome Furs represent an outlet for you that Wolf Parade didn't provide in terms of the music you were making? Yeah, that's that's that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I gave you a, several and, options there, but it was a choose your own uh, adventure and you picked the right one, I think. I picked the right one. Yeah, no, Handsome Furs was definitely uh was definitely uh, an aesthetic and songwriting that I think has carried through to operators. Like that was that was really the beginning of like the the first day I sat down with the Korg Electra BMX drum machine sequencer and decided to fucking throw the manual in the garbage because I thought I could figure it out on my own and then went on tour a week later with like a big question mark over the set that that was that was something I really needed to do uh, aesthetically and 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 artistically and 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 that started like a journey I guess which is which has ended up with uh, I, I think the music that operators is playing right now mm. you know yeah and operators is really a 
culmination of a lot of a lot of different elements that I've that I've picked up along the way playing music and learned and and just gets kind of distilled into one one awesome band that I love being in you know <laughs> yeah no I can tell you were having a great time uh the last time I saw you guys play it was it was just quite obvious you guys all enjoyed being uh in the band together which is nice to see you know yeah I think that sometimes I would think some people, I don't know, I don't think the the music has a, a joyousness to it, but I think that because it is sort of electronic based that some people might also ascribe a kind of coldness to it, you know? Yeah, I like, I like being able to play with that, uh, that dichotomy, you know? Uh, so for the stuff that is really squelchy, analog, unstable uh, sounding, I like like ancient for instance i like i like the kind of cold delivery at the beginning there's kind of a zombified quality to the delivery at the beginning and then for the stuff that's more clocked like cold light which is very rigid i like being able to sing kind of unhinged you know yeah or or true for that matter uh is is very clocked it's just two bass notes back and forth but i like being able to just Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Kind of lose my shit over top of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's good. Know. Yeah, no, it's good. There's a wildness to it. I can, I, as I say, it's just palpable that you're, you're really enjoying it. You mentioned earlier that some of your interests as a kid were the K Records scene, Kill Rock Star scene. Um, yeah, uh, those labels. W- w- did you have like a key band or artist when you were younger that sort of sparked? Your interest? Do you see someone who triggered the path you you've been on? Uh, you know, I th- I think for I I only got to see them once at Lollapalooza, <laughs> but uh, Sonic Youth, you know, I it was a was a huge inspiration to me. Not just because of the so I, it felt like they were reinventing music. And and now that I'm older and I've listened to all the records that influenced them, I'm kind of like. Nah, yeah, yeah, yeah. People were kind of doing this before, not 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 specifically the way they were, but you know, there there were bands who played with alternate tunings and long noise breakdowns, and you know, but but at the time for me, those mid period Sonic Youth records were uh, like opened my brain up. Also, they were a band that recommended a bunch of other bands too. You'd read interviews with them and they'd be like talking about these bands, like every just casually name dropping these bands I'd never, never heard of. 
like everyone should know about them and and it would make me want to seek them out because because I thought if if they thought they were cool you know then they must be they must be great so there was that and then there was uh I think I think for like the K Records Kill Rockstars stuff Unwound was a big influence on me do you, they were do you remember what small, I, sorry go ahead they were from a small town uh just south of, of Vancouver Island from Tumwater and they were really young too. Uh, they were a little bit older than me, but at the time, I was like, "Fuck, these guys are just out of high school," you know. Like, I'm in high school. I'm like, I was like two years younger than them, you know, maybe three or four. I don't know. Did you know there's I, like a new unwound box set? Yeah, yeah, all the early, early, early stuff. I believe I so. Yeah, have you, are you, are yeah. you going to track that down once you find an apartment? I I will. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just drag that thing around and every house you sublet. I don't think that's a good idea. No, no. But that that band was huge. But to be really honest, like uh, the biggest influence on me musically, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this band or the people involved with it, but um, the first show I ever saw was uh, the first good show I ever saw was um, this band called M Blanket. Do you know them? M Blanket? Yeah, M Blanket, like the letter M and then Blanket. No. M Blanket, yeah. They were a punk band from uh they were a punk band from Victoria. And they had in the band uh this guy Dave Wenger who had been involved in uh in, as a teenager in this band called Moral Decay. He was like a guitar virtuoso. Okay. And Moral Moral Decay got a lot of traction, like in the thrash cassette world, I guess. And the other guy in the band was uh, Chad Jones, who went on to become Frankie Sparrow, put a couple uh, criminally underrated records out on Constellation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then started a band called The Witchies, which toured with Wolf Parade and were fantastic. But uh, for whatever reason, just they they broke up, and the, that record has never really seen the light of day. Which is a shame, uh, but that band, Dave and Chad's punk band, w- uh, were completely, utterly inspiring because they were the only one of the local bands that I saw who had their shit together. They wrote great songs. The lyrics were amazing. They could really sing, both of them. And Dave went on to form Daddy's Hands, which was a big influence on me. And I I played with them uh, on and off and became very close friends with him and Emily from that band and Chad to this day is still one of my best friends. So, but at the time as a teenager, I I was just like, these guys are, this is what I want to do. You know, I watched them on stage in the back of a Chinese convenience store in, uh, Duncan, British Columbia and walked out of that show and my life completely changed. You know, I think it's always the coolest when uh, a local band does that to you. Um, because it seems more attainable. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, and it's, it's not like some rock star on TV or something. Yeah, agreed. Totally agreed. And so from that moment, did that spark? I don't know the trajectory. Like, was Atlas Strategic your first band? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, Vish, they were not. Uh, my first band, uh, my first, I, I had a couple of like, practiced three or four times like came up with a band name and then broke up bands but my first real band was a band called um 
they were called Say Uncle. <laughs> like, as in, like, stop it, you know? Like, no, I know the expression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we, oh, man, did we suck. Uh, <laughs> all those bands I was just talking about, we ripped all of those bands off. Sonic Youth, Unwound, my friend's band, you know, ripped them all off. Yep, just straight up. Yeah, but that's what you do. How old were you? Yeah, 15. <laughs> that's exactly what you do. That's exactly what you do. I remember that Lollapalooza show you saw, Much Music did yeah. a big big like news story on it. Do you remember that? I do not. Okay, did you watch Much Music at all? I did. I watched it back then, but I don't... What, what did they... Uh, what was their news story on? Well, they did a whole it? thing on, on Sonic Youth and Lollapalooza. I, I watched it because I think... I taped it. I have it on tape somewhere, actually, because I saw that tour in Toronto, or well, okay. it, was, it was in Barrie, and that right. that Lollapalooza day that changed my life because I saw the Jesus Lizard and I saw Pavement for the first time and Sonic Youth and Beck. yeah, yeah, I just saw all these crazy, uh, awesome things that meant a lot. That to was me. a huge day for me. And actually, the guy that I started uh, Say Uncle with, we we went to that Lollapalooza together. We were, uh, you know. We were buddies. That was our that was our thing, and that we wrote a ton of songs after that weekend. Like we went to Vancouver on the ferry. I think we stayed at one of my relatives' houses in Vancouver, and then came back and were like, "All right, new game plan." And had like absorbed Jesus Lizard and um, some really weird shit on the second stage too. But Yola Tango played, I believe. Yeah, and the Far Side played the one in Barry, which were really cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, there was some really cool stuff. I that was a good day. I mean, I it seems I feel like the Do you think the 90s gets a bad rap? I can't tell anymore. I people have been disparaging it and I'm like, but that meant so much to me. I don't know. I think there's plenty of great things about the 90s just like any decade, but there's also plenty of just absolutely terrible things about it too. Yeah. Uh, not not just to do with music either, like politically it was a pretty boneheaded decade, you know? It maybe wasn't as bad as like two thousand to two thousand and ten, but it was kind of it was kind of the big party before the giant letdown of the millennium, you know? Like Yeah, that's yeah. What, yeah. maybe it only seems bad in retrospect now. Like you look back at it and you're like, you know, what happened? There was like the war in the Balkans was completely botched by the West. Uh Somalia was a total fucking disaster. Uh you know, all of the seeds for uh, for eventually what would what would come back and bite America in the ass in in the early two thousands were were being sown then, That's true. and they were being and they were being sown in such a bizarrely gleeful neo like neoliberal way that yeah, and, and there was a there was a real optimism I think that that had a, that had a bizarre counterpoint in popular media because politically everything was seemed very optimistic on the surface like it's like the cold war is over everyone has democracy now yay democracy sure there'll be some growing pains but the, but then the but then the art that was being made in the 90s was the most viscerally upsetting you know like you had uh well I mean I guess like the Tarantino films uh really intensely violent artistic stuff but then popular music popular i remember popular music at least guitar based stuff just descending into total douchebag bummer land by the end of the 90s yeah that's 
true, but there was also some, yeah, I mean, yeah. we don't have enough time to go into the weird collision between counterculture and mainstream culture and, and how, I don't know, obviously both were affected in positive That's and true. negative ways. It's, it was weird. That's true. And I mean, and there was great stuff happening in the underground too, but the nineties are weird for me to think about now. Cause I lived through them and I watch bands, you know, there, there's definitely like a nineties revival, which to me is, it's not that it makes me feel old. It's just, it's just kind of depressing. It's like, is it depressing? I, I, I can't figure it out. I haven't been to too many reunion tour things, but the ones I have seen have been kind of exciting. Um, Oh, I don't mean reunion tours, Vish. I mean new bands. Oh, uh, the new bands that sound like 90s bands, but they're like 20-year-old 20, 20 kids. Yeah, but they sound like, like a bad facsimile of the breeders. Right, yeah. right. That is... Or something. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. I have seen that. Yeah. And... Yeah, it seems it seems like you know that's the it's it's a it's kind of like this year's this year and last year's version of like Cold Wave or Chill Wave in 2010. You know, sure. Like like it's a popular. If you live in Brooklyn and your parents pay your rent and you want to be in the right band, start a band that sounds like you know whatever, Pavement or Breeders circa Last Splash. But for every band that's completely aping that, there's like there's a handful of bands that are actually taking good things away from, from the nineties and, and, and like doing amazing, amazing things. Yeah. With it. Yeah. I think that's, that's a nice way of, of summarizing it. I think, I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, I wanted to, uh, ask you kind of what's going on with operators since you're woodshedding and, and making new songs. Like, uh, do you have a sense of where you're going with this band? Yeah, I do. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think, uh, you know, when we last year, this, this time, exactly a year ago, we were in Montreal, a block away from here, staying in an Airbnb, uh, and recording at hotel to tango. And we recorded 15 or 16 songs. And the band that we were then is not really the same as the band that we are now. So, I'm excited about making this record because I think it takes, I think it usually takes about one album or at least, you know, a demo style album and then a fuckload of touring, like maybe a year's worth of touring for a band to really discover what kind of band it is. I think you can see that in a band like Viet Cong, you know, you know, so you listen to that first Viet Cong tape and then uh, the cassette EP and then you listen to their LP, the Graham Walsh recorded Graham Walsh from Holy Fuck, and that band made a great leap forward in songwriting, aesthetic, and just their statement of intent. And I think, to a certain extent, the same thing has happened with operators. We we duked it out on the road, man. <laughs> we we played in Sioux Falls. <laughs> we went to Europe. We we stayed up for forty eight hours in Scandinavia and played a bunch of shows, and we all got better at our instruments, better at what we're doing, and we have a better idea of who we are. Not to disparage the stuff that we recorded back last February, but I think it's just a natural progression. So, the new stuff uh, is, I think, has well, I know has more guitars blended in with it, uh, and I think it's equally further in both 
sort of pop songwriting direction and just sheer utter abrasiveness. So, uh, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about making this record. The, the songs you recorded at the hotel in February, we've seen, we've heard some of them on the EP and the single. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Those were all recorded at the hotel to tango. And then there's another nine songs that, uh, We've played live a lot, but uh, the recorded versions have not come out. So uh, you're not scrapping them. I don't think so. I mean, I think they'll come out in, in some form. But we've written a bunch of new material, so that's you know, I'd like to record that. <laughs> I think you were alluding to the idea that a band's second album might be or second uh, wave of creativity might be stronger than the first, right? That's what you were kind of getting at. Yeah, absolutely. Do you? Because you've done this so often, um, meaning played in bands, and and you kind of know this now, have you? Did you contemplate like creating a first wave of of music and and uh, you know touring behind it, and then just potentially not releasing it, like just using all of that as a springboard into that second wave of creativity, so that you know what you release is actually uh, the band uh, sort of more in its proper form. I. Th- I think that's essentially half what we did. I mean, we we didn't go ahead and release everything that we recorded in in Montreal, not because it wasn't well recorded or I don't think the songs are good. I just I just knew that if we waited a little bit longer, it was going to something else was going to happen. It was going to get better. We did. But but yeah, I mean, we could have released nothing and just toured the band for for that long, you know, but I think uh I wanted something for people to listen to at home, you know? Yeah. No, that's, it's very kind of you. I love the EP. I can't stop listening to it. It's, uh, you're, Thanks, man. You, you're good at the catchy songs. I will say this about you. Thank you. Thanks. I, I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of the pop songs anymore. <laughs> I, I think I used to be, I think I used to be, and I always like the original version of maybe like this hearts on fire or radio Kaliningrad was uh you know the vocal melody was a little more intricate and restrained and it was maybe a little more delicate or uh professionally arranged i guess sure. but then when we when we went into the studio i just got really excited and just layered a bunch of noise over it and and just screamed my guts out you know so i think as time has gone on i figured out I, i've sort of gotten better at uh at blending my need to layer everything with noise and and like the loud louder loudest aesthetic which i'm a big fan of um and and also pop like i i just naturally want to write pop songs yeah because i love i love them (laughs) pop songs are good but you don't want them to go down too easy i think that's fairly obvious yeah i like i like melancholy pop songs too which is something that I think you, I mean, you, I'm sure you grew up with the same music I did in the eighties. Like that is the fucking stock and trade of eighties pop songwriting is you, you listen to something like, uh, Oh my God. What is that? Helen Parsons project song? I in the sky. Yeah, Have you yeah, listened yeah. To that song recently? Not recently, but I remember being struck by the fact that, uh, I got really into Eric's trip and, uh, Chris Thompson from the band has a, yeah. had a project called moon moon socket. Mm-hmm. And on the f- first Moonsocket record, I think, he did a cover of that song, and it made so much sense that he would do that. 
given uh, I didn't even clue in that that would be an Eric's trip thing or that Chris would be into it. And then that made me reappreciate the song. <laughs> I remember driving in the car with my dad as a kid back and forth to Duncan to go visit my mom. And uh, we'd be driving back on the highway at night through trees, you know, just the dark rural highway. And there was a period of time where that song was on the radio every good night. And uh, as a child, that song completely upset me and I didn't know why. And I only recently figured it out when I started listening to it again is because that song is, uh, is a, it's a beautifully constructed pop song that lives in a room where somebody has done something terrible and done a lot of cocaine. Like metaphorically lives in this, in this really hollow emotional space. That's uh, there. And there's a lot of minor keys in that, in that song. There's a, there's a, there's a melancholy pull to it. And there's, there's a lot of that in, in, you know, eighties pop songwriting that felt in, in the air tonight, anything that Phil Collins did that isn't Sue studio, you know, like, it's totally weird how commonplace and high rotation songs like those were at that time. It's very weird. Yeah, because they're fairly challenging. I think. I mean, thinking about the way things went after that, with like the late '80s into the early '90s, those those songs really were like, yeah, they were challenging and they were dark, like very dark. Yeah. And I, that was a early education for me, I think, you know, all the Tom Petty stuff and, you know, that sort of new wave leading into leading into what would eventually become big budget overproduced pop music really, really uh, <laughs> struck a chord with me. Yeah, it did to me, too. And, and I think, as I said earlier, MTV, much music, those things played a big part in conveying some of those songs to me. Yeah. So, yeah, that's weird. Um I have a feeling something is happening in Wolf Parade again. I can't. Uh, I can't not confirm or deny. <laughs> <laughs> but it's possible, right? I just have a feeling. I, I just. I'm just saying this because I know you're very busy, uh, and sometimes when people are really busy with their other projects, uh, that it, it sort of suggests they aren't going to, uh, you know reconfigure an old project but that isn't what i've learned recently is that's actually not the case sometimes people ramp up what they're doing on their own because that other thing it might be coming back and so that's what i'm wondering about but you can't i'm just i'm just a busy guy man (laughs) would you like the band to get back together at some point because you haven't done anything in uh almost five years right uh yeah you know i would i would it would be nice. I like uh, I like working with those guys, and I think we ended. Uh, you know, I think our last our last show was in Vancouver, and I really think, in retrospect, that was a perfect that was a perfect place and time to uh, stop touring and making records for Wolf Parade. Because the good the good thing about stopping then is that everybody's been able to maintain a a friendship. You know, things didn't get. Things didn't get too far gone. I mean, you've been on tour before. You know, you go on tour for enough years, you're stuck in a van with your family, you know, and there's bound to be friction. So sometimes it's good to take take a break. Did you, is that what it, so is, was it touring that drove you guys down? 
Uh, I think it was touring, and I think it was, uh, to be completely honest, Wolf Parade, I'm not exactly sure how we made it as far as we did without any sort of support network, because we really did. <laughs> this is something that I, I don't think a lot of people who, uh, I think a lot of people wouldn't even think about it, but we, we did not have management. Uh, we hired mostly hired our friends to come out and work with us on tour. And that includes doing really important shit, like settling the shows or accounting or like booking hotels, you know, uh, we, yeah, we did, we didn't have management. We didn't have anybody taking care of day-to-day uh, -day stuff for us. We had a record level and a lawyer and a booking agent. And that's not and bad. That's a team. That's something. It is a team, but uh, but it's not. I'm not saying everybody needs management by any means. I think I think I've I've been in two very I'd say very successful bands that did not have managers. Like Handsome Fur is also no management, but um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, with Spencer having multiple projects, me having multiple projects, and everybody having a wildly different idea of what they wanted to get out of Wolf Parade and, and no, no direction with the career, you know, it was like, all we were concerned about was what any band should be most concerned about, which is putting on good live shows and making records. But you know, when, the, when doing that is your life at a certain point in time, you need somebody else involved to do all the other stuff that lets you continue making records and touring without going crazy. You know, yeah, and you need to like as much as much as I love him. You need to not hire somebody like your friend Todd to do all the accounting while you're on tour. You know, because then what you get is you get a CPA coming coming to you at the end of the tax time saying this is a shoebox filled with napkins with a bunch of disconnected figures written on it. Yeah, where did you guys spend the money? And how many T-shirts did you sell? And and you're just like, oh, I don't know. How many t-shirts did we sell? Was it because... The answer is thousands. <laughs> thousands and thousands of t-shirts. Totally unaccounted for. <laughs> you know? And the, and those little things kind of snowball to the point where then you get a phone call from somebody being like, being like, hey, what, like, none of these t-shirt sales numbers make sense. And all you should be doing is writing good Wolf Parade songs and playing good Wolf Parade shows and not dealing with that. And that's where having management and like a better team would have would have helped us out. I also think we're all kind of crazy, so I think we just got, a, got on each other's nerves. <laughs> Was it because... Did it happen as fast as I remember it happening? Like the, your ascend as a, I, I remember you guys playing at Ed Video Media Arts Center with Arcade Fire, and then I think you came back with them. Maybe the next time I saw you might have been at like the Danforth Music Hall or something with them. I, I don't know. Yeah. It just seemed like everything was happening. It's weird because you know, in a weird way, I'm friends with some of the people in these bands or I knew them before they were bigger or whatever. And in retrospect, I wasn't really keeping track. Did it happen quickly for you? Uh, it didn't, it felt like it happened really slow, man. <laughs> it did. Uh, I think because, you know, I had moved to Montreal, maybe in retrospect, it happened quickly. Now that I'm older, it seems like not such a long time, but I moved to Montreal in 
I, I really moved to Montreal in, in late 2002, I guess, or mid-2002, August of 2002. By the end of that year, by, by December, Spencer and I had recorded, and Arlen had recorded our first EP. 2002-2003, I think, early 2003. And then... Um, I think I have one. It's like a CDR or something. Yeah, we made two EPs before we actually put the record out. And the first one is a three, three and a half inch CD in a cloth bag, which we then re- repressed. I have uh, I have like a CDR with like a pink cover, maybe. Does it have a unicorn on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a repressing of the first one. A oh. repress. <laughs> and by repressing, I mean we got Haji's laptop and made another copy of it and photocopied the sleeve. It's a reburn. It's a reburn. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, th- there was 2002 writing writing songs. We like, but 2003, I think we played our first show. Maybe was was what happened, and then. Uh, and then 2004 was seemed insane, but everybody was grinding it out at jobs. Like Spencer was doing demolition, uh, Haji was in school, which is kind of a job, I guess. Arlen was working as a projectionist at Concordia, and I was working a string of increasingly dodgy telemarketing jobs. Hmm. And then it it just seemed to take forever for me because I knew we had all these songs and I knew we were a good band. And when we signed a sub pop, everything we were used to doing everything ourselves and it just seemed so slow. We were like, okay, counting down the days to go to Portland to record, recorded in Portland. And then it took forever for the record to come out to the point where like I had quit my job, you know, being like thinking like recording with Isaac Brock in Portland on sub pop, like fuck you job. (laughs) And then I, when I got back, I realized no, not fuck you job. Like, this record isn't coming out until next October. So I, I moved to Taiwan briefly and taught English after the record was recorded. And I didn't see those guys for months. I, I was just in Taiwan with a bad mix of apologies, like <laughs> <laughs> waiting for it to come out. So Wow. Okay. I didn't know yeah. that. I didn't know that at all. And then, and then again, when we started touring, I think the point where it really took off for me was, we went out with Arcade Fire from Montreal to the West Coast, uh, and we were opening for them. And I, and we were not making we were not making a decent amount of money doing opening slots because we we're an opening band, right? And their record had come out slightly before ours. Ours was still waiting to come out. Our record came out in the middle of that tour, and we started playing headlining shows in between the Arcade Fire shows. And I had never played for that many people in my life, right? It wasn't like they were big venues. It was like two nights at Shuba's. Like, but at the same time, you know, they were all sold out. So, and that, and then we played a show at NYU, uh, a small concert hall at NYU, and that's when I kind of thought, okay, this is actually, this is it. Something's happening. <laughs> okay, so the the fact that so the success came slowly <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. So you weren't the fact that you had Todd, not counting how many T-shirts you sold. It wasn't because yeah. you were necessarily caught unawares. You just you just generally weren't organized or, or sort of, you know, that's not a zone that you guys would have thought about too much. We didn't want to hire anybody that we didn't know on tour. That was it. You know, we, we wanted to hire our friends because we all came from this hardcore DIY background where 
getting the record label to suggest a professional merch guy to us seemed like the stupidest thing ever, even though it probably would have made us a bunch of money and uh, saved us a lot of hassle. On the other hand, having Todd on tour made sure that nobody killed each other because he was friends with everybody and was a great impartial guy who wasn't in the band. So, you know? Yeah, uh, I, I don't, it doesn't sound like you regret any of it. I, I don't. I really don't. I, the only thing I regret with Wolf Parade was not playing more television. Oh, right. Like you, did you do, uh, what did you do? You did Conan? No, we did like the, I fucking, what is that guy's name? The, the, the guy that no one likes? Carson Daly? Scottish guy. He's not on anymore. Oh, probably. Craig, Craig Ferguson. Craig Ferguson. Yeah. Yeah. That guy. <laughs> you did that show and that was, and Divine Fitz did Jimmy Kimmel. I remember that. Yeah, we did. I mean, we did, Divine Fitz did like Jimmy Kimmel, Fallon and Letterman. And I think that's it. Man, Letterman, that must've been, you know, that's like, I only got, I've been to one Letterman tape. Letterman's my guy, you know, like he's the guy. Yeah. So I've only been to the show once I saw a taping and uh, I, I keep, I'm desperately trying to go back. And I had this thing where I wanted to document a band's day there, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, it didn't quite take. I think someone also then did that after I pitched it. <laughs> oh, really? Wolf Wolfred turned down Letterman three times. Why? I don't know. I mean, I think. Uh... Did you not like him? No, I mean people liked him. I think I think a lot of the I think a lot of the decisions we made were rooted in the in uh in a distorted perception that we had of perhaps how other people were gonna perceive our appearance on things or our our appearance on a certain festival. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, like we were still we were still living in the basement, basically. <laughs> like Sure. And probably trying to be cautious. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is, in the long run, I think is good, because nobody ever really compromised their integrity, you know, it wasn't like, there was never a chance of the Doritos stage in Red Bull presents an evening with Wolf Parade, you know, right, like, right. like, yeah. Well, which you know, is, Letterman's uh, around, I think, till May, so uh, if you can get one of your bands, maybe Wolf Parade together, maybe you can play the show. It would be funny if we got Wolfred to back together specifically to play Letterman and then broke up immediately after. Yeah, that would be really funny. I think that would be a nice, stupid human trick, frankly. If you could pull that yeah. off, that would be great. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> well, it does sound like, uh, yeah, well, I, I hope, uh, you know, like a lot of people, I hope that uh, the band plays again at some point because it was a great band. But uh, you're also in great bands also. Is Divine Fit still a thing? It is still a thing, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna write some more songs. Uh, you know, I've got operator. I'm deep in operators right now, and uh, Britt uh, is still got you know some touring for this last spin record to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. And that that yeah. experience has been fun. That's that that seems like it would be a fun thing. Divine Divine Fits. It was th- that experience was amazing because I you know I got to play with this guy that I loved. I grew up listening to and. Uh, who I eventually got to become friends with and write songs with. I mean, it was, it was, it was great for me. And I think we both really needed that because uh, Divine Fits happened to come, the release of the record and, and the recording of the record happened to coincide with me and Alexi uh, 
from Handsome Furs, uh, me and Alexa getting divorced, mm-hmm. which was really shitty. <laughs> and uh, and to be able and you know one thread through my life has been no matter what's going on, I I always have a band that I can go out on stage and and get that out. You know. Yeah, it does seem to be a thing. Whatever I, I'm feeling. I wondered if it was deliberate, actually. If it was deliberate, if I just like put myself in terrible uh, emotional situations, so I can. <laughs> no, no, no. I just mean that it seems like when there's, it doesn't seem like you uh, dwell upon any kind of um, re- the end of any relationship. You seem to be in another band almost, or immediately after uh, we hear that you're not in a band anymore, or in this case, not in a relationship anymore. That's yeah, usually because I'm working on them simultaneously. You know, there was there was one point where and Divine Fits were existing at the same time. I was writing for both bands and and then there were when Divine Fits wasn't touring, you know, so It does happen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Dan, I, I do want to thank you for being on the show and I want to tell people that the latest music by Operators is a single for Ecstasy in My House and also an EP. Uh, it's called EP1. Both are available courtesy of uh, Last Gang Records and you can learn more about these releases and the band at operatorsmusic.com. Uh, Dan, is there a song by the band that I can play for people right now uh, before we uh, say goodbye? A song by Operators? Preferably, or Unwound, but yeah, preferably by Operators at this point. Yeah, uh, you could play uh, You could play. Start Again. Start Again, that seems appropriate. Why did you pick that song? Because it's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> all right that's because i i i think that song uh it's it's title is appropriate but i i also think that that song is a it kind of illustrates some of that like uh melancholy 80s pop thing that we were talking about earlier so okay. yeah all right well let's let's do it this is start again by operators uh dan beckner it was uh an honor and a pleasure to get to speak with you and it was uh, not- <laughs> I wish you the best of luck with everything. Thank you. Talk soon.
Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.